Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to Five Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Atkins, and today I'm here with Tamar Benoit. Hey, hey. And also an old friend. And we were trying to do math, and I'm apparently older than I think. Um, because I've, I've known our guest for about 20 years in many ways. He is responsible for me being uh, on this podcast. I, I just think because it's, his name is Ken Baugh. So Ken has a, a crazy history with lots of different churches on both coasts. Um, Saddleback being one, McLean Bible being one, uh, and then back to Coast Hills in, in uh, Southern California. Is that, is it Orange County or south of Orange County? Because you're like. Yeah, technically it's south Orange County. So yeah. just put them both together, Todd, and you got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, it's, but it's kind of crazy. Uh, one of the things I appreciate about Ken, having known him for decades, um, is you were always very comfortable in your own skin. Uh, and you always uh, knew your strengths really well. And you were not afraid to put young leaders in positions and give them responsibility and authority. And I was one of those guys, which is why I say, hey, I wouldn't be who I am if it wasn't for Ken Ball. Because you, uh, we talked about this again uh, before the podcast. Like I ended up at McLean and the senior pastor didn't want to hire me. And Ken had to fight for me to come there. Uh, and then uh, within six months, I was launching a campus, which was kind of crazy. Our first campus. There you go. Potential. So you trusted you you trusted me a lot. But I know, um, you know, we would we would often say uh, around here that you know discipleship and development are two sides of the same the same coin. And I know as much as you have meant in my personal development, I know that discipleship is also uh, a big passion of yours. So talk a little bit about that. Um, and then I, I'll talk a little bit more about you and we'll get into our questions today. Yeah, thanks, Todd. Well, it's great being here with you guys. I appreciate it. And Todd, you, even as a young leader, you are always extremely diligent, hardworking. And the 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 many thing I appreciate a lot of things about you, but the one thing I always appreciate the most about you is that you're a critical thinker. Not that you're critical, you're just a critical thinker. You're a good thinker. And I, I really appreciate that. I love the intellectual honesty that comes with that. You're not afraid to give your opinion about things. You do it in a respectful way. So you're you got a good, you got a good set of tools there, my friend. So I'm glad that that served you well over these years. So yeah, discipleship is really my wheelhouse. And for two reasons. One, because that's what Jesus asked us to do as uh, the leaders of his church is to make disciples. And I've taken that as seriously as I think a person can take it. I wanted to, I wanted to make discipleship the main thing at the last church I was senior pastor at. And to a large extent that led to my undoing uh, there. So we can talk and we can talk more about that, but I really see Jesus example of pouring into other people, spending time with them and just doing life together is really a lot of what discipleship is all about. It's really life on life. And when we try to 
limited to a program or a class system or something like that. Not that those things are bad, but I just think there's a life on life dynamic that you can't get any other way than just spending time with each other on the front lines of life. So, you know, one of the things I think is really interesting that we're seeing in light of COVID is that there were a lot of churches that are kind of saying, okay, well, at least in our area, there's several that have come back, but they're only at like 30% capacity or 40% capacity. And I think what we're starting to see revealed is churches were measuring engagement and not measuring discipleship. And as a result, they thought they had a lot more people um, <laughs> that were fully on board with the vision and that they thought were actually contributing, but they weren't contributing their gifts and service to Christ. They were just showing up. And attendance is not contribution. And it's really not even, I mean, it's, it's cheap engagement. Um, but talk to me about that, or, or let me, I'm tossing that out at you and just kind of respond with what you're, with what you think. Well, Todd, one of the things that I've been doing is really studying how God created our brains to work. And the right hemisphere of the brain is actually the character development center in a person's life. And that is the relationship side, emotion, attachment, bonding, uh, you know, all of those types of things are largely in the right hemisphere. The left hemisphere runs on data and information and knowledge and words. And for the last 300 years, we have been, as a church at large, we have been focused on left brain dynamics to help grow people in Christ. And either were unaware or ignored the whole right brain dynamics, which really comes back to the relationship that I talked about. And I see Jesus modeling this, right? He invited the disciples to come be with him. That was what was implied in follow me. He didn't invite them to meet him at the synagogue at nine o'clock in the morning for a Hebrew lesson. So again, it's not that those things are bad. It's just that character passes through the conduit of relationship. Hmm. And, uh, to a large extent, bypasses the, the left hemisphere. The left hemisphere participates, but it's really that right hemisphere that is uh, the way we measure that is how we respond to something. The, our first response to something is always an indication of what's really going on inside of us and our character. So when we talk about this from a, a leadership perspective, leadership development, leadership pipeline perspective, we would throw up, uh, you know, if I had a visual here, it would be, hey, traditional traditional education or even training in the church is often um, a knowledge transfer over the course of time. Traditional education, that would be knowledge transfer uh, through, you know, testing and display of knowledge through writing papers and whatever um, over this many hours, which is very transactional. Yes. Um, we would tend to go, okay, transformation happens when you have knowledge, experience, and coaching because, you you know, transformation does occur in the context of that relationship. But how would you say that occurs? I mean, you know, you, you have a new book, uh, Unhindered Abundance, and, you know, flipping through, looking at it, and then um, knowing who you are. Um, you're not just... 
you're not just, you're, you're engaging both sides of your brain, even in the writing of this book. Correct. Um, and I love that it brings that out. So, so talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, it's not an, we're not advocating one side of the brain over the other. We're actually advocating a whole brain approach to this. Right. My point is we've tended to overemphasize the left dynamic, left brain dynamics and underemphasize and underutilize the right brain dynamics. So you can even, you can even tell that in how we have designed our sanctuaries, right? Our auditoriums, they're all, you know, seats sitting side by side, looking forward to somebody teaching and preaching God's word. And while there's great value in that, information that is dispensed from the pulpit does not produce transformation. Right. It's a part of that dynamic, but it, it doesn't do as much as we think it does. If it did, then the Pharisees would have been the most spiritually mature people during Jesus' day. And clearly we know they were not. So it's not an either or, right? Like so many things, it's a both and. And I don't, I don't mean that as a cliche, but I do think it's important for us to recognize the whole dynamic of emotional health, of relationship, of the attachment process in relationship, how God designed us, uh, our brains to work. And my book really looks at the whole person. So it's informed with both special revelation, scripture, and general revelation, which I use as an umbrella over things like neuroscience, psychology, philosophy, sociology, et cetera. So, you know, you heard so many churches when we're like a year in now to this whole COVID thing. And you had so many churches that say, ah, we're going to go deeper in discipleship. And they heard somebody say that. So they said that too. And then, <laughs> Somebody else said that, somebody else said that, somebody else said that. And so, you know, but, but my, my real question is, is how, how many have actually, how many have actually done that? And, and what does that look like? And um, honestly, like, where do you think we're missing it from a discipleship perspective in churches? Is it, we're making it too complicated? Is it, we are labeling um, is it that we're applying a menu mentality that we're, that is common in our world where everything is catered toward us and we're, you know, trying to do too much with affinity and then calling that discipleship? Like, what would you say, where, where, where are some of the big places we might be missing it? It, it may be as easy as our metrics. That to measure spiritual growth and maturity is a tricky thing, but it may be the best way to measure that is my growing capacity to love. If love is the supreme virtue in the Christian life, which I think the apostle Paul would say a resounding yes, of these three things remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Love is the most excellent way he says, and on and on. Uh, I don't see a lot of measuring in that regard. Right. It's more about how much Bible knowledge do you have? Your theology, is it conservative or not conservative? Is it, you know, what is your position on any number of, uh, of issues? And I think we've kind of lost the idea that discipleship, the ultimate goal of discipleship is becoming like Jesus. And I think that's, that's the paradigm in my book that I talk about, I use the phrase Christ formation based on 
the idea of progressive sanctification that we're becoming more and more like Jesus, not that, not that that will be fully actualized in this life, but I think there's more progress that we can experience in this life than we realize. That's the whole uh, dynamic behind the title, Unhindered Abundance, right. that there's so much more available for us than most of us realize. So the, the ingredients that you break down in there are uh, information, relationship, and, um, and direct participation. Nice. So <laughs> how do those you play out? the quiz, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> so how do those play out? And uh, honestly, Ken, this is really, we tend to shy away from like book podcast kind of thing. Um, but knowing you personally and knowing your heart, and I want everybody that um, is listening to this, know that in the first 30 pages, you will have more scripture references than any other book that you ever would pick up. Just, just say, other than the Bible, um, you will have a lot of scripture references. This isn't just some left brain stuff. Yeah. So yeah. So, yeah. So I, so I break it down into those, into three ingredients for growth, information, relationships, and direct participation. So the information specifically is re referring to uh, scripture, special revelation, and in my book, uh, findings from both neuroscience and psychology, which I would put under the umbrella of general revelation, that there are things in scripture we can't know in any other way. And yet there are, even Paul says in Romans 1, that even his God's divine attributes are revealed in creation, right? So uh, we don't typically talk, though, about in the local church that I'm aware of, a whole lot about general revelation. We tend to emphasize special revelation. And so I think there's, I think there's room for general to both inform as well as uh, be a part of our learning, teaching, and uh, paradigm for education. Uh, the relationships are, goes back to a lot of the right brain stuff that I already referred to, that if I want to learn how to love, I'm not going to learn how to do that from reading a book. I'm not even going to learn, I'm not even going to be able to do that by knowing all the passages in scripture, knowing that that's a chief uh, attribute of God's character. I'm, that's not going to make me loving. What's going to make me loving is as when I am doing life with people that are loving people and I am getting that myself, I am opening up my heart more and more to the love of God that is being poured out in that through the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter five, verse five, and through uh, my relationship with others. So love is really the dynamic. I have a whole chapter where I go into, into love, uh, specifically God's love, agape. Uh, as Paul refers to it over and over again, because it is a, it's really love that changes things. And then we have direct participation, which is it requires effort on our part. And a lot of times people push back on that and go, whoa, 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 what about grace? Well, as Dallas Willard was so uh, fond of saying, you know, grace is opposed to earning. It's not opposed to effort. And over and over again in scripture, we have admonitions and exhortations and commands to do certain things, right? Put on the new self, put, take off the old self, you know, set your minds on things above, set your hearts uh, on, uh, on things above. So it's just over and over, there's lots of those admonitions, right? Uh, so those are the three dynamics to 
the goal, which is becoming more like Jesus. Well, Ken, thank you so much for, I mean, just even taking the time to, to think about and write um, about that and un, unhindered abundance. And if you have not checked it out, you're going to want to check it out. So listeners go look it up, but we do have some five questions to ask here. And I do want to jump into the first one. And the first one, Ken, is who are you learning from? So, man, there's so much great content out there these days. So I'm learning from podcasts. Um, I'm a huge reader. And so reading is a big part of uh, my life. It's something my wife and I really enjoy doing together. So that's, that's, that's a great thing. Uh, and just the people that I'm coaching. You know, I learn a lot. There's a lot of learning that goes on with iron sharpening iron. I was going to say, I know that you, we haven't brought this up, but you know, for, for the last six years, uh, a lot of what your day to day is, is actually coaching pastors. And so, you know, one of the things I would say to draw out of that is what do you, I, I do have a really practical thing that I want to go ahead and ask, because if I don't ask, I'll forget it. If a pastor's reading one book with his wife, what should that be? And then answer, what are some things that, you know, you've seen the last several years that come up again and again? With pastors specifically? Yes. I would say the, uh, the one thing that's coming up again and again with pastors, there's two things. One is just a pervasive sense of burnout. And the other is a overwhelming sense of loneliness. And I think COVID has exacerbated both of those things. Uh, as far as the book that I would recommend reading with your spouse, oh man, that's a tough one. There's so many great ones. Uh, one of the books Susan and I have been uh, reading uh, recently is called the, uh, the Other Half of the Church, which is by Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks. And they are talking about how the right brain really uh, works and how we've been kind of what we were talking about earlier, just some of those dynamics between right and left brain dynamics and uh, how love plays into that, how group identity plays into that, attachment plays into that. Because all of that really is what I believe is to be modeled in Christian marriage, right? It's a whole dynamic around being one flesh and the connection and the intimacy that comes, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually. And so all of those things work together. It works for us in the body of Christ and it works for us in the context of marriage, mm. Christian, Christian marriage specifically. Can you, we mentioned that you're, you're coaching pastors. And just as you said, you're seeing the kind of the themes of loneliness and isolation and burnout in a, in a lot of the pastors you're coaching. And of course, you know, you're able to coach them through that, point them to scripture, point them to truth to be able to, to overcome that. But the reality is not every pastor has a kin in their life currently who's able to, to point them in that direction. So maybe there's, maybe there is a listener who is walking through that right now. What are, what are some practical things that they can do um, that you would point them to, to overcome those things? Yeah, that's a great question, Chandler. Uh, I think one of them is, is to give themselves permission to feel. Uh, you know, we don't have a real good theology of emotion within evangelicalism, especially. And 
you know, whenever you start talking about emotions and feelings, everyone throws the red flag up. Whoa, you're not supposed to let your feelings run your life. That's not what we're advocating at all. Mm-hmm. It's just God gave us emotion. God is an emotional being for crying out loud. If you doubt that, just read through the Old Testament. And so being creating his image and likeness, part of what that entails is that we're emotional beings. So if you're just dead to your emotions, it's like cutting off your arm or your leg. It's just, it, you're not going to function the way God intended you to function. Uh, the other, I think, is finding somebody that you can be vulnerable with. And that almost always is not going to be somebody in your church. Hmm. Because you need a place where you can go to experience safe feedback. Uh, One of the things I talk about in the book is safe feedback is a person that can give you empathy and compassion and they can listen without judgment. It's the person that you know you're not going to get back from them any kind of criticism, judgment, rejection or abandonment because of what you're sharing with them. A lot of pastors have to live behind a mask of what the congregation sees as socially acceptable or what the denomination determines is that. And that's part of what leads to this loneliness that then creates the burnout because there's stuff going on behind the scenes, behind the mask that is creating all this dissonance because of how people are perceiving you and the line that's stacked up after you preach your sermon. And they're saying, Oh, pastor, you know, you're, you're, that sermon changed my life. And and while you can appreciate that, you know what's going on in your heart. You know the pain that you're dealing with, uh, that you're not addressing. And that really, it's, a, it's kind of a slow uh, drinking of poison when you're just denying all the stuff that's going on in your heart on the inside. And so, you know, one of the things that I really am hoping to continue to be a part of is creating a network of coaches for pastors. And I think uh, to your point, Todd, a little bit ago about COVID and Barna actually uh, did release something fairly recently that was pretty alarming to me in regard to the current state of pastors in America specifically, and just how so many of them, man, if they could make a living doing something else, they would do it in a heartbeat. Wow. And so that just tells us, man, we got some serious problems going on here. And I think elder boards, I think district superintendents, I think denominations, one of the ways they can serve their pastors is to help their pastors find a safe place, pay for that pastor to see a coach or a spiritual director or a therapist, whatever kind of fits into your, you know, uh, your worldview there. But you need a safe person to, to, to have in your life. And it needs to be more than, than your wife. It needs to be more than uh, some people you're close to in the church. It, it, it can't be the small group that you're a part of that's in your church. I'm telling you, man, it's got to be somebody outside of your system. Let me take off my um, a little bit of my Southern Baptist upbringing uh, here in that um, if you're like uh, I remember there have been certainly been times in my life where I was more spiritually aware than others. And I tend to dismiss easily the spiritual realm uh, because of, of how I was raised maybe. Um, And so I, but I do think that, 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 you know, that, that Satan is a real, he he is real. Um, And if you think that you um, aren't susceptible or uh, that he doesn't have a beat on you, then 
you're wrong unless he's already taken you out. He's already neutralized you because let's face it for all Christians, for all believers, once you have stepped over the line uh, and, and become a follower of Christ or, you know, uh, fire insurance, um, maybe um, from a, you are now a believer and, you know, you, you think you have eternal security and everything. Yes. So, you kind of um, have a tendency to grow a little bit and then get complacent. And I think that's where Satan wants us. Like his job, once we accept Christ, is basically to neutralize us. And certainly, if we enter the ministry, his job is to neutralize us. So it's going to be constant, constant lies. And so, you know, we've, we've talked with uh, Carrie about lies leaders believe and lies pastors believe. But in this, from the spiritual side of things, Ken, uh, from a thoughts, emotions, you know, lies. What are some of those? What are some of those lies that you think um, pastors believe on both sides? Because I, I know guys who they enjoy being the senior pastor. They enjoy what the modern view of a senior pastor is, but they rec- they don't. The flip side of that with, is with how much weight comes with that. Um, so talk a little bit about those things. Well, and I think with with that position, when you're up front, when you're preaching on a regular basis, um, you're in the word, you're preparing for sermons, all of that. Again, Todd, there's a human element to all of this. There's unresolved emotional pain in all of us that tends to need to be suppressed through a lot of different things drugs, alcohol, pornography are typically where people go to do that workaholism, uh, fantasy, you just, you know, shopping, uh, power, controlling others. There's all different ways that we can cope with stuff. And the, uh, the greatest thing I think pastors need to to be able to be is human. And the shame that I think Satan's greatest weapon against all of us as human beings, as believers specifically, is shame. Because shame goes after our apps, our identity. That it's not that you just did something that was sinful. You are just a corrupt, sinful, you know, scum, scumbag of a person. Right. And the dissonance that that creates when you are, you have this position of being a spiritual leader and yet at home, you're struggling in your marriage. Your kids don't like you. You know that there's stuff going on in your own heart and your own mind that's not godly. And the, it, it creates that dissonance that over time is largely what leads to pastors undoing. It leads to burnout. It leads to moral failure. It leads to any number of different things. And so, again, having that place that is safe where you can go and talk the, talk about this stuff is really really important and it's just not something the whole the whole aspect of of soul care self-care you know it it that's just not something we got in seminary and you have more scripture verses about the heart in both old and new testament than you realize and uh it's the heart that we have to really be intentional about cultivating uh, and I think I think that's where Solomon went off the rails. Not Lon Solomon, but King Solomon, where Solomon <laughs> went off the rails, right? Uh, 
you know, Jesus' words to the church at Ephesus, you know, I have this against you that you've left your, you know, your first love, repent and do the things you did at first. So there is this nurturing and cultivating of a heart for God that does include obedience. It does include, you know, uh, being intentional about our own spiritual growth and, and, and soul care. But it's not something that we've really equipped pastors to know how to do. They can do it for other people, but they don't typically do it for themselves. Mm. There's, there's so much we could keep following up with that. I think it's a conversation as the church as a whole, we need to step into more and more, especially as, as leaders and pastors and Ken, just as you said, it's something that we haven't always been taught. There wasn't a, always a seminary class of how to, to care for your own soul. There's more to care for others. So thank you for, for sharing all that wisdom for you. What is, what is a main point of emphasis right now for, for your leadership team or even yourself um, as you're leading? So a couple things. Uh, that are important to me right now. It's really learning. It's listening, listening to God, listening to others, being more present to what God is doing right here and right now. You know, I think a lot of leaders are very future focused and we're always thinking ahead, casting vision, living in the future. It's really difficult to live in the present. And if we constantly are living in the future, we're going to actually miss what God is doing right here and right now. So these last six years that I have not been a local church pastor, right? I was a local church pastor for 25 years. These last six years, I started my own ministry and I've been doing coaching and writing and, and speaking around these topics that we're doing right now. And it was a big adjustment for me stepping out of the local church role from the strategic planning to, you know, vision casting and to living in the future and always trying to, you know, be a step ahead to, okay, Ken, I feel like God was saying this to me. Okay, Ken, we're going to try something different now. I want you to just trust me in what I put right in front of you. And so I've been kind of walking in that for these last six years. And it's been very interesting. And I realized that there some, was some need for control in my mm. own heart, for taking matters into my own hands, uh, for being able to uh, do things and maybe take credit for things that weren't mine. And so it's been, it, it's been a good learning experience in that regard. You know, there is a tension there. And even as you're saying that, I was thinking about my own self where, and I want to I be planning, I want to be dreaming. And I feel like as, as visionary leaders, God has given that as a gift for, for many pastors. But there's also a tension of you also have to be where you are right now. And just as you were saying, it's easy to to just live in the, in the, the uh, what's up next instead of what's right now. So as, as you've stepped away from that, um, you know, how because you're saying, hey, I'm on I'm on this side, you know, six years I've been out of, of pastoral ministry. What would you tell yourself during those 25 years? Hey, here's a lesson that I've learned on the other side about how to live in that tension. Be real. You know, it's, it's a value that I feel like, and Todd, you've known me for a long time. Being real is a value that I, uh, I hold high, and it's one that I try to aspire to for, out of my own integrity. But it is really easy to deceive ourselves and to think that we're not wearing a mask when we really are. And I think for, for the pastors that are listening that have large churches, I think it makes it exceedingly difficult just because of the human dynamic of being in front of all those people and everybody's listening to you and everybody's holding on to your next word. 
And there may be good reason for a lot for all of that, but the human heart is the human heart and we have to really be careful with that stuff. And so it's almost like the larger your platform, uh, the easier it may be to actually slip into pride, to slip into, you know, self-denial, to slip into things that you find easily in others, but maybe are a little neglecting and seeing in yourself. When uh, one of the things that's really comes out, uh, I, in your, in your book, sorry, I don't keep, want to keep referring back to your book. Again, Ken, we try not to talk about people's book when we're interviewing. <laughs> we don't want to be just another podcast that talks about somebody's book. But you talk about um, spiritual disciplines that rewire your brain and something that is so familiar to pastors and church leaders is spiritual disciplines. I mean, you know, we, we all know it. We've all given messages on it. We all know how important it is. Some of us actually still do it um, or parts of them, the parts that, uh, the parts that we tend to enjoy. <laughs> um, like ask me when the last time I practiced silence and solitude, that's not, it's, it, that's not a good look for me, but you talk about uh, spiritual disciplines, rewiring, rewiring your brain. So, you know, for pastors, uh, and church leaders, how, how, how does that work? Or, or, or what are you talking about there? So in order to get into the rewiring your brain, let me just talk for two seconds about neuroscience. Essentially what we think about over and over and over again, creates a neural pathway and that's what we move toward. So the lies, the distortions, the guilt, the shame, the condemnation, whatever it is that is going on in a person's heart, uh, that narrative that's kind of playing over and over in your head will have an effect on you and it will create distortions about God. It'll create distortions about yourself. It'll create distortions about others that need to be both identified and uh, addressed. One of the ways we address those is to hold those thoughts captive, right? I think what Paul is talking about specifically when we are to take every thought captive to Christ, it is that we are to take that thought that's a lie, hold it up to what we know to be true, and then let the truth of God's word overwrite the lie and the distortion that is largely come out of my personal experience and, uh, and pain. That stuff, personal experience and pain is a powerful shaper of the heart. And uh, God's truth especially a person's identity in Christ, which is a really great place to start, is an essential part of that transformation process. So the spiritual disciplines that both I engage in and that I believe are the most effective in rewiring the brain are scripture memorization. Uh, in fact, I remember hearing Dallas uh, Willard once say that if there was only one spiritual discipline that he would practice, it would be scripture memorization. And yet that may be the one that I find most people find the most difficult. It's like, oh, I could never do that. I, I just couldn't do that. Well, let me, uh, let me give you a, a personal example. Uh, Susan has sexual abuse in her background, and I have permission to share this too. Uh, she has worked probably harder than anybody I know in her own personal recovery. And we've been together now for 35 years. Um, I couldn't be more proud of how hard that she has worked. A few years ago, we started, we kind of stumbled into this rewiring your brain idea. 
and started really memorizing scripture. She took it so seriously that she actually memorized the entire book of Ephesians. Wow. And it took her two years, but I noticed a significant difference in her as she was just saturating her mind and letting the spirit of God imprint those truths on her heart. It, it was powerful. And if she were sitting next to me right here, Todd, she would say, I could never do that. I could never memorize scripture, but she did. And actually I've got a section of my book called how to memorize scripture by accident. And so, uh, it, it really is just repetition and that's just the way the brain works. That's how habits are formed and so forth. It's just the things that we go back to over and over and over again, create those neural pathways that then tend to create, that is our default. Mm -hmm. And that's the direction that we move. So it really comes down to what is it that you're putting uh, in your head? What is it you are constantly thinking about? And there's three dynamics of the heart that I talk about in the book, thought, emotion, and will. The one dynamic throughout all of scripture, both Old and New Testament, the one dynamic that we actually have been given direct control over is what we will think about. And what's interesting is that our thoughts actually affect our emotions that then affect our will that then drive our behavior. So behavior is always a result of what's going on in the heart. Behavior, whatever the behavior is, is not the problem. It's a problem for sure, but the problem is what's going on in the heart. And so I talk a lot about the heart uh, in the book. I do that in my discipleship cohorts. I do that with the guys that I coach. Uh, it may be the one neglected thing that we actually don't pay attention to. Hmm. You know, you talk about a lot of people might say, hey, memorizing scripture, that sounds awesome. I can't do that. And you said <laughs> you have the chapter in your book where it's like how, how you memorize scripture by accident. Well, what would you give for, you know, somebody who's like, I would love to do that. I just don't know where to start. Yeah. Where would you tell them where to start? So I would just say, take, take something small, right? Like Colossians three, one through seven. Like not, not all Ephesians. Yeah, no, I wouldn't start there. Okay. I would start actually with Colossians 3, 1 through 17. It's a great place to start. There's so much stuff packed into those 17 verses. And then what you do is you just, you write them all out on old school flashcards. Here we go. Yep. And you keep a stack in your car, you keep a stack by your nightstand, you keep a stack with you, uh, you know, in your backpack or whatever. And you just go over those two or three times a day. You just read through them two or three times a day. You do that for 30 days. I guarantee you, you may not have it memorized word for word, but you're going to have it pretty soaked in. Uh, the other aspects of this is, you know, read some commentaries on that particular passage that you're studying, because the more you are soaking yourself in the truth of that passage, that's going to help it stick uh, in, in your brain. And uh, I'm actually an advocate of memorizing large passages of scripture instead of doing topical memory about smaller passages. Not that I'm, I mean, Nav Press published my book, so the love the navigators, right? And all the topical <laughs> memory system. It's awesome. Careful what you say here. But, but, <laughs> Uh, more scripture can get ripped out of its context through a topical mm -hmm. memory system than otherwise. And I think that's just something we have to be careful of. So when we're memorizing scripture in a large passage, we're actually memorizing the way the spirit inspired it, right? So there's the work of the spirit that going, is going on there, why he is confirming those truths in our heart as we are memorizing and meditating and going over and over and over 
And God's word is supernatural, right? It's never going to come back void. It's going to do its work. It's going to divide. It's going to do uh, its, its transforming uh, work. But uh, as I am applying myself through that spiritual discipline, if you will, that exercise, that isn't what actually makes me grow and change. It's the spirit that is working through that means that produces the growth and change. But the effort on my part is to actually sit down and write it out by hand and then write it out over and over and over again. One of the guys that I coach has been memorizing the book of James. Uh, he's, he's not even a pastor. And every day, he sits down and he just kind of writes out as much as he remembers. And then he goes back to it, writes it out again. He's been doing this for the, whole, the last year, spending the entire year in the book of James. Wow. I can't think of a better way to invest our quiet time than doing something like that. One of the things that uh, if you could see what we're seeing right now that you would appreciate, and I certainly uh, appreciate about Ken, is if you look behind him on his shelf, it's just, commentary after commentary after commentary book after book after book that go that it, it is what I would expect. It's not what I often see uh, in the, on the shelf of the pastor, but I know that we both share an affinity uh, for one set of commentaries in particular. And I think, um, and I think it's not one that's common today. It may have been common 30 years ago, um, but for some of you young bucks that are coming up and through and getting deep in your theology, I would challenge you to pick up a good, a good uh, B-series commentary. Um, because what you're talking about, Warren Wiersbe's B-series, of course, is um, absolutely fantastic when it comes to the heart piece, the application piece, you know, that kind of a thing. And um, yeah, I know that you mentioned it in the book, but I also know that. Um, from previous conversations back in the day, that weirds a big a big deal. Well, and I I don't know if you know this, Todd, but I mean I had the opportunity to write when David C. Cook republished those. I wrote the eighteen hundred word forwards to every volume in that series. So I've spent a lot of time uh, in the B series, and I think he I think uh, Warren Wiersbe did as good a job as anybody in being able to write a commentary that had that was approachable, that was devotional, that had substance to it, uh, that actually had a very robust and conservative theology to it. I mean, it really is, and it's, they're short, you know, they're very accessible. That's beautiful, beautiful. All right, Chandler, you have one last album? I do. Speaking of back in the day, Ken, what would you tell your 20 year old self about preparing to lead? There's no downside to humility. Hmm. Being in leadership and being around other leaders, uh, especially when you're new as a young leader, learning to submit to authority is probably one of the hardest lessons to learn. And regardless of where your ministry career takes you, even as a senior pastor, I reported to an elder board. So you're always reporting to someone, right? You're always under somebody's authority. And I think that's one of the lessons that God wants to build into young leaders first. I think we see it in David's life, right? He was, he was, God was building into him a submission to Saul. 
even though Saul was abusing him and treating him terribly, that there was something that David understood about not raising his hand against God's anointed that uh, was part of what shaped his character. And I think that humility is one of those character traits that is uh, the hardest to form in hard-charging, gifted, strategic, visionary leaders. And it's one that I think God takes really seriously. Well, thank you so much, for Ken, for uh, today's conversation. It's been great to, to see you and catch up with you. And uh, just thank you for sharing um, sh- sharing this book with us, as well as uh, just sharing your thoughts on, on where we currently are and you know the importance of discipleship and the heart of a pastor. So thanks so much. Thanks. It's great being with you guys. And if you would, uh, for those listening, we ask that you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review and tell a few people about this podcast if you think it will make uh, a difference in their life and leadership. Yeah.